0: Hello, everybody. I hope that you're all doing well. Wow, and 2023 is officially upon us. I wish nothing but the best for each and every one of you, and I hope that you start off your year with a bang. What better way than to dive into some scary stories? Let us begin as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I was given a list of rules to survive Christmas, I'm not sure I'll be able to. Written by Kyle Harrison Henry practically tugged my arm off to make it to the mall Santa. A line of kids were waiting and we were running late. It was getting dark outside already and a gentle but prevalent fog rolled across the parking lot. But he insisted that he needed to give Santa Claus his list for Christmas. Might you a little old for that, I said, trying to remember his next birthday and how old he would be. Separation was taking its toll on me, and I was doing my best to appease my ex with a list of unreasonable expectations. The last thing I needed was for her to try to snatch away more custody time for me, just because I couldn't keep a schedule. Henry insisted, though, and told Santa a couple of items as I waited impatiently. And what of you, mister? Don't you have any wishes that Santa can grant? The mall employee asked as he walked Henry back to me. I gave the older man a dead stare and remarked. Sure, find a way for all my mistakes to go away. He gave me an odd look and I pulled Henry away my phone already ringing incessantly because we had missed the first bus. Come on, grab your things, I told my 10 year old son as I heard the bus starting to break outside the mall lobby. I didn't feel like answering the phone until we were well away from snooping people. Too often my problems were the gossip of others, and we were supposed to be happy during the holidays. I have to keep that image alive, I told myself. Together, we shook off the cold and stepped onto the vehicle, the driver greeting us with a traditional Merry Christmas. I didn't reciprocate the greeting as I forced Henry toward the back. My irritation was growing by the second as he whined for my attention. I found an empty seat and I shoved my luggage underneath it before returning to the driver and paying the fare. Henry climbed into the seat beside me and asked for his Nintendo Switch as I pulled out my headphones. It was a ways to make it to Somerville, and with the way the weather was shaping up, I knew that sleeping would be difficult on the bus. The drive was slow but steady and once I was sure that Henry was off in his game, I made a phone call. It was time to face the music. Lisa picked up on the fifth ring. As soon as we were connected, she started to berate me for being late. It's not my fault, the school play ran late and now there is this dreadful fog. I told her and it wasn't a complete lie. Things had gone out of hand. Listen, I don't need any more excuses, Dylan. This whole separation is hard enough without you trying to make things worse with your devil-may-care attitude. You better thank your lucky stars that the court said custody it was 50-50 or I would have already had Henry here with me. She snapped. "'Lisa, please. I'm trying my best to make this work. "'You know that Henry isn't the one that needs to suffer because of our fighting,' I said. "'There wouldn't be any issues if you hadn't decided to sleep around.'" I couldn't argue with that, but I didn't want my anger to show, even on my face, as Henry saw that I was raising my voice. He tugged at my shirt as I kept getting frustrated with his mother, and then I wound up shouting in his face to quit bothering me. Henry's eyes got teary and a few passengers shot me a dirty look as I got up and moved away from my son to continue the phone call. Did you seriously just yell at our son? Lisa snapped. I'm trying to do a million things here, I told her. And then Henry came up and was starting to get on my nerves again when I cupped the phone with my hand and told him to quit bothering me. Those were the last words that I ever spoke to him. A moment later, the loudest, most powerful screeching noise that I had ever heard launched me into the air. I felt Henry's small fingers slip from my grasp as glass shattered and other passengers screamed in terror. My body slammed against the roof of the bus as the entire vehicle tumbled end over end off the road. Small fires, shrapnel, and smoke filled my vision as I fell around the interior of the bus like a ragdoll. The last thing that I remember clearly was a woman reaching for her own child's hand as the entire group of us screamed in agony. My vision blurry as I lay down, weakly calling onto to Henry and only darkness answering me. I felt numbness and pain all at once when my vision had returned. Fire was spreading inside the bus and I heard moaning as people tried to crawl to safety. Blood was dripping off my forehead as I tried to move as well, searching everywhere nearby for any sign of Henry. My voice was hardly a whimper amid the throng of screams. It didn't sound like anyone was in any better shape than I was, and my son was nowhere to be seen. I could feel sharp metal ripping my leg apart as I tried to move again, and I turned to see that one of the long metallic poles from the side of the bus It was sticking straight through my right leg, making it impossible to even attempt to break free. I laid there, weakly crying for Henry for what felt like hours. No help was coming. I even closed my eyes and said a prayer to God, but it didn't feel like anyone was answering. I don't know if I have ever felt more lonely than in that moment, but if I had thought that it couldn't get any worse, I was dead wrong. Somewhere between my consciousness, I finally heard Henry's voice. I was so weak that I couldn't even open my eyes, couldn't even tell him where I was. It almost felt like it was a dream, as I heard a small voice crying out to me, and he fumbled in the shadows. I couldn't even see his face, only hear his pain, and I could do nothing. Other shapes mingled amid the fire, perhaps rescuers. They were trying to reach Henry. I couldn't find the energy to tell them to help my son, but somehow these strangers knew to save him first. I deserve to die after everything that I've done to my family. I thought to myself as one of the strangers loomed near to Henry. I couldn't see them from this distance, but they were rather obese and looked like, that they might be wearing a suit that was red and white, perhaps even a traditional Santa Claus costume. Was it the man from the mall? This was confirmed moments later when I saw the stranger pull out a large bag from behind his back, the kind that the friendly Kringle from the North Pole might carry to shower a kid with toys on Christmas morning. He reached for Henry and I heard my son make a yelp. You're hurting him, I said as loudly as I could, but the newcomer was paying me no mind. He had this weird belly laugh, not the friendly Santa by any means, and then he placed Henry inside the bag and tied it up, his muffled cries for help no longer heard. I was scrambling again, trying not to panic as the stranger climbed back out of the wreckage, I tugged at the shrapnel and screamed, hoping that Henry was safe. And then the fire grew so hot that I could hardly remain conscious anymore. I remember my last thought being for my son, hoping that he would forgive my earlier behavior. If I make it out of this alive, I swear that I'll be better. I told any god that might be listening. And then the pain swept through my body again and I fell into a deep sleep. When I woke, firefighters had found me and removed the metal pole from my leg. I was being carried on a stretcher to the outside and my eyes were fluttering about as I asked the rescuers where Henry was at. They repeatedly told me to remain calm and got me to an ambulance nearby as I tried repeatedly to sit up and look at the other survivors. There weren't many of us. Some looked like they would never walk again and others didn't have any injuries at all, but just seemed so forlorn. Our entire lives had been turned upside down in a single instant. One of the paramedics got my information and I repeated my request to find my son. I didn't want to go to any hospital without him. They promised they would and since the bleeding on my leg had stopped, they focused on the major injuries rather than my predicament starting toward the snowy road i tried to figure out what could have caused our wreck to begin with had the driver fallen asleep had they miscalculated and slid across to black eyes half an hour later the paramedics returned with questions about henry they had searched the bus and found no other survivors that's it's not possible i saw a man in a santa suit rescue him he's here somewhere I said as I forced myself to sit up. The first responders shared an uneasy look at each other. They told me that there was no one near the wreckage that had matched the description of the Santa rescuer. My heart began to pound frantically as I realized that they didn't believe me. Or they were worried that something bad had happened to my son and didn't dare say as to not alarm me. They insisted that I head to the hospital to receive further treatment, and despite my protests, that's exactly where they sent me. Lisa met me at the hospital. She was beyond the edge of sanity when she learned that our son couldn't be found. I was certain that she would either need to be placed on, watch, or seek immediate medical treatment. Sure enough, about a half hour later, I learned they placed her in the psychiatric ward. I didn't blame her anger, this was all my fault. I was supposed to protect him, I told myself as I looked toward these snowy heavens. I had no idea if God was listening, but I begged for something to tell me what to do. God didn't answer of course, but I did receive an unexpected visit that night. I was halfway asleep when I heard something on the roof. It sounded like a loud thud and then feet shuffling across the tiles. I opened my wary eyes and peered up the ceiling as something shook near the edge of my room. Besides the moon glow, it was pure darkness, and I couldn't see for sure what was coming, but some kind of strange shape manifested from the top of the wall, sliding down until it hit the floor with a wallop. The shape was formless at first in the shadows, and I asked, Who are you? What do you want? Help me. Help. And then I heard a deep belly laugh, familiar and cold. I realized it was the same man that I had seen inside the bus. You. You were with Henry. I shouted as the man in the Santa costume had appeared. Merry Christmas, Dylan. He said as he walked toward my bed. Where's my son? Nurse, nurse, I-, I need help in here. I shouted as I tried to push for assistance. Though no Henry is safe and sound at the North Pole. Where he will stay unless you and your former wife prove yourselves worthy of my blessing? The man answered. My mouth felt dry as he finished these simple statement. It hardly made any sense. Are you insane? What kind of game is this? I asked. ''Well, that's precisely what it is, Dylan. A game. And you and your beloved have twelve days to play by the rules successfully. Otherwise, your son will remain in my care. Considering how pitiful that you've been as a parent, I would say this is a fair trade,'' he replied. ''Enough of this. You're speaking nonsense. Where is Henry? Give him back.'' ''Well, that's no way to speak to Santa.'' The man chided as he stroked his beard. It's no wonder Henry told me his Christmas wish was for mommy and daddy to get together again. You are hopelessly unimaginative, treating him like a prize to be bartered in your squabbles, he snarled. I felt at a loss for words as I clenched my fist and tried to move, but it felt like weights were pushing down on my chest. This is madness. Please, I'll do anything you need to prove that I'm a good father. I can't lose him. I begged. Santa gave me a wiry smile and passed me a note. It looked like a simple Christmas poem. A partridge in a pear tree? What is this, lyrics of a song? I asked. Your first task. Free the bird by sundown and you'll get your next instruction. Fail, and in Tenry it will be mine forever. Although the way this is shaping up, maybe that's for the better. Santa returned to the shadows, grabbing his things and adding, Follow the rules of the ritual to the letter each day, and you will get exactly what you are seeking. You will show your true colors as individuals. If you fail even on a single task, the entire game will crumble. I expect you and your wife to prove your worthiness, Dylan. I expect you know what will happen if you fail." He snarled as he touched the wall then disappeared toward the roof again, like a slinking pile of gunk. My fingers trembled as I held the note, wondering if anything I had experienced is real when I heard a sharp scream. It sounded like Lisa, somewhere nearby. I found myself unable to move through for at least another fifteen minutes or so. Helpless, I listened as these screams stopped and murmurs filled the air. The man in the Santa suit must have gone to speak with Lisa as well, I realized. When all was silent, I got out of my bed and pulled my IV pole to the nurse's station, demanding to find out where my wife was. The employee didn't even have to tell me, because a moment later, Lisa was there at her doorway. Dylan, oh god, Dylan! She shouted as she fell into my arms, and then I saw that she had a note similar to mine, her eyes filled with fright. "'What does it mean?' Lisa whispered. I couldn't give an answer because I still couldn't believe that it was real. She closed the door behind us, her hands shaking as she declared. "'I swear that if this is some kind of prank, Dylan, I'll never forgive you. "'Lisa, I tried to tell you before and you don't listen.' It was that man dressed like Santa Claus. I think we have to obey these crazy rules to get Henry back, I told her. What? We need to go to the police, she declared, and risk losing him entirely. I can't do that, Lisa. I have to try anything to get him back. I know that I don't deserve to be his father after everything that I've done, but this is bigger than my mistakes. We have to work together to save Emma. I was practically begging her to listen to me. Lisa didn't look comfortable with this, and to be honest, I wasn't either, but we agreed to meet up the following day. Despite the fact that it was Christmas, we didn't even spend the night together. The bitterness and anger and fear that we felt permeated the very air. I kept clutching the note that the stranger had given me, hoping that I could fulfill the request and follow the rules to get my son back hoping that Henry would forgive me for this mistake. We met in the park, about three miles from the hospital. Lisa still looked like she needed some medical attention, but she insisted that she was fine. A partridge and a pear tree. The only thing that I could think of was in this park. There are a few pear trees around here. Maybe we have to snatch a bird from one of them. Lisa asked. The note that we were given had all but crumbled into ash by that morning, making it impossible to read. We had to hope that what we were doing was what was expected of us. For the next hour, we probably looked like a pair of idiots wandering the park with binoculars looking for a strange little bird. I had to even Google what they looked like. I was close to giving up when Lisa excitedly pulled my arm, pointing toward a tree. At last, we had found the bird. She hurried up the tree, trying not to spook the thing as I kept a lookout. I felt like a fool. Why were we out here trying to appease some crazy man that had kidnapped our son? It didn't feel like it was going to work. Somehow, Lisa had grabbed the bird and fell to the ground, crushing it with her weight. I looked at the broken partridge, certain this meant that we had failed. Yet instead, as I looked down at the list Santa had given us, a new item and it was added. A new rule to obey for tomorrow. Obtain two turtle doves. Is this for real, like from the song? I thought the first task was odd, but now I'm really confused. What does this guy hope to gain by making us run around like idiots? Lisa asked. None of it matters, only Henry. We need to focus on where we can find those doves." She grew quiet for a while as we stared down at the bird that she had killed. This thing only got caught because it was a baby. I killed some poor, defenseless animal. For what? Does that mean that I can't even be a good parent? She whispered. I felt the need to comfort her, but she pulled her hand away from mine. Clearly, she wasn't looking to me for support. We finish this and then get on with our lives, she declared, leaving me alone in the park with the dead bird. I guess it was too much to ask for a Christmas miracle. The next few days were filled with more bizarre requests from Henry's captors, rules that got tougher with each new task, but I won't bore you with all of those details. We had to steal from a priest, raid a farm, and something else equally as crazy. To be honest, it was almost becoming too easy to handle these tasks. Lisa and I were hardly talking to each other except when we had to. We would review the rule that we had to follow for the day, figure out a way to obey it, and then complete the task. It was almost making me hopeful that Henry could return to us if we kept this up. But that all changed on day five i woke up to a blizzard the news report said that most of the roads in our little town were closed and yet the list had a new task for us find five golden wedding rings fingers included when i first read it i immediately felt appalled santa was expecting us to physically harm people just to get five golden rings we couldn't go that far I called Lisa, anxious to see what she wanted to do. This must be some kind of test, from God or something. We've done some crazy things these past few days, but this is crossing the line. We can't hurt people, I told her. You're asking for my permission to give up on Henry, our son, the one that you're responsible for losing, she snapped. Her voice was nearly hysterical. No, I just... We have to find a way to communicate with this insane Santa Claus. Beg him to just let us have Henry back. Haven't we done enough for this freak already? I didn't want to become some kind of killer, but I wasn't sure that there was an alternative. For a long time, Lisa didn't say a word. And then at last, she let out a long, sad sigh. I'll try to fulfill this task alone today. You try to contact this idiot and beg for forgiveness or whatever. We'll call each other again right around dinner. That way, if I haven't succeeded by then, you help me finish the job. Is that fair? Lisa asked. I was reluctant to agree but knew that we didn't have a choice. I told her to be safe and then looked toward the dangerous blizzard outside. It's time to prove that I can be the type of father that Henry deserves. I thought as I grabbed a heavy coat and gloves. Five minutes later I was pushing down the road in my Honda, trying to ignore the triggering flashbacks that I was having from the rack. As the images flashed across my mind, I became more and more focused on reaching the mall where Henry and I had met Santa. Somehow, despite the weather, I had made it in less than an hour. The place looked deserted, though, and the North Pole Photo Center where we had talked to the stranger, was already being dismantled. I felt a rush of depression hit me as I ran to one of the employees taking the props down. Sir, please can you tell me if the person that played Mall Santa is still here? I asked. He looked at me like I was delirious. I think that gig ended just before the holidays. What's the issue? Did he make your kid a promise for Christmas? I think he did that for a lot of people this year, surprised they didn't fire the guy. I stood there pondering his words, wondering if the stranger had used his magical powers to take other children. Could it be that Lisa and I were not the only ones forced to obey these insane rules for twelve days? I began to wander them all, searching for any sign of the Santa Claus. I wasn't expecting much clutching the list of strange rules that the man had given us on Christmas Day. Maybe it was time that I had stopped treating this like a normal kidnapping and to think outside the box. I thought as I reviewed the rules for each day. I still had all the items that Santa had asked us to obtain. Was I meant to bring them somewhere? Almost as soon as the thought had occurred to me, I saw a wall painting near the back of the mall. A corridor that seemingly went nowhere with graffiti that resembled Santa's workshop. It was insane, but I had to give it a try. I checked my watch and noticed that it was time to call Lisa. I ran to the parking lot, nearly being pushed down by the cold as I tried to make a phone call. I left a voicemail telling her to come to the mall. It was possible that we could find Henry before having to fulfill the rest of these insane demands. She pulled up and popped the trunk, demanding that I not ask questions as she took out a small black bag. It looked like that it was soaked with fresh blood. Inside, I saw that she had five severed fingers, all with golden wedding rings still attached. I felt the need to vomit. This better be good. I don't like the idea of carrying these around, Lisa told me. We made it through one of the back entrances of the mall to find the graffiti. I had brought the other items and told Lisa to place them near to the wall. This better work, she said, irritated. We waited there for a moment looking like a couple of weirdos as nothing happened. Lisa was about to snatch the items back up when I grabbed her hand and pointed at the wall. Look there, it's rippling the way a pod would if you struck it with a stone. We watched for a moment in confusion and awe. As the wall changed to colors and pushed away from the center to reveal the long and dark tunnel, my crazy idea had worked. Oh, come on, before anyone sees this, Lisa ordered. And we followed the tunnel until it became so dark that we couldn't even see the hand in front of our faces. I told Lisa to grab a hold of the wall and slowly move forward. There must be something up ahead, we can't stop now, I told her. The darkness eventually became pure white, and I felt a cold, wet, soft powder hitting my shoes as we kept trudging forward. Snow? I said nothing until at last the white was so blinding that I couldn't move. Then when I opened my eyes, I saw that we were in a vast, wintry wasteland. There was endless white snow in every direction, and an intense blizzard barreling down on us. Is this the North Pole? Lisa asked as she clutched my body. Temperatures had dropped so dramatically that it felt like if we didn't get out of the cold soon, we would be freezing to death. I looked out in the direction that we were going and saw a small hut. We started running. There was smoke coming from a chimney. I didn't know for sure what we were about to walk into, but I knew that we couldn't last any longer amid this frost. Pushing the door open, we were immediately greeted with the smell of fresh evergreen, a warm fire going, and a pot of stew and the most amazing display of Christmas decorations that I had ever seen. This has got to be some kind of psychedelic trip, Lisa whispered as we moved to the south side of the hut. I looked around the interior, realizing that it was a lot larger than what the hut looked like on the outside. I had known that ever since we had started following these rules that the man we were dealing with had magical powers, but now seeing all of this with my own eyes, it was an overwhelming feeling of dread as I realized that Henry was in danger if we couldn't save him. Look, there's a staircase to the basement, Lisa said as she pushed a bookcase out of the way. What if Santa is down there, maybe something worse, I asked. We've come this far, we can't turn around now, she decided. Grabbing one of the lanterns on a nearby workbench, she took the lead and we descended into the basement. The cold swiftly returned as we went deeper, the strange sound of screams coming from below. I soon saw what the reason for the noise was. Iron cages hanging around different parts of the cave were housing children no older than our own son. They hardly had any clothes on their starving bodies, and most of them looked like they had been there longer than simply a few months. What was this deranged Santa Claus doing to them? My eyes drifted south to where strange green-skinned creatures toiled on manufacturing toys. A long conveyor belt ran towards a pit of molten lava, where the metal was slowly refined. It was a workshop in a grander scale than any that I had ever conjured possible. The elves, do you notice anything strange about them? I asked as I had watched the creatures. Does it matter? Lisa asked as we hid and observed their labors. The creatures were mindless, obedient, almost brainwashed. And then I saw exactly what was bothering me. Each of them had a tattoo on their neck with a designation or a number. Prisoners. I looked toward the children and realized the dark truth. Santa is transforming these kids into his workforce. I was too loud because the creatures stopped in their work and they turned toward me. Immediately, Lisa jumped and ran down a different corridor. I could hear the monsters scrambling to find us. And thankfully, our longer legs gave us the advantage to reach around a staircase that led into what looked like a dungeon. The lantern guided our steps into the murky depths where we heard, of all things, singing. I froze at the bottom of the steps where I saw at least a dozen more children all being prepped for a transformation, and then Santa himself, his reindeer tearing at their skin as if they were prey, as he used a barbed whip to force them into obedience. We have to do something, I told her. We came here for Henry. We can't help all of them. Lisa whispered as we carefully snuck to the back side of the workshop. I looked at all of the heavy equipment and wondered if it was possible to shove it on Santa, kill this madman, and free all of them. We found Henry first before I could finish that thought, and Lisa suddenly forgot about the mission to remain stealthy. We're going to get you out of here. She told him as she rattled on the cage. It was enough to get Santa's attention though. Ho ho ho, what is this? I was starting to think that you two were going to be a boring test, but once again my intuition was wrong. Claus said as he turned towards us, his eyes gleaming playfully. Release him, we've been following all your rules, I told him. And yet it is only day five. You expect me to be lenient simply because you found this place. Did you really think even if you saved him that you could stop me from finding him again? Santa asked. What do you want then? This ritual is utter nonsense. We have proven that we can be good parents. Lisa shouted back. Santa let out another belly laugh and pointed at the bloody bag that she was still carrying. And that is the sign of a good parent. You have vandalized property, destroyed innocent animals, and even stolen from the dead. You are not worthy of having a child. I looked at all of the items that we had gained so far. What was the point of all of this? Just a sick game. I realized as soon as that little boy came to me and told me that his mommy and daddy were fighting, that I had yet another chance to work my magic. You underestimate what Christmas is and how vital my rules are. This is the way that the world works. I will make you follow those rules and you will still never get Henry back. He is mine now forever, Santa said. The elves were circling us and I feared the worst, turning to Lisa and told her, I'm sorry, this is my fault. If I had just listened to you, we wouldn't be here right now, I told her. Tears covered her eyes as she clung to me and admitted I know that we were going through a rough patch, but Henry shouldn't have had to suffer. I wasn't being a good parent either. We both failed him. Santa told his elves to stop in their march and commented, It amazes me how often people usually realize their flaws as they are facing impending doom. Your words have a ring of truth. I can tell that you meant what you said. But I'm still not sure that you deserve the boy. Take us instead. I said and immediately Lisa agreed. There are times that we have been awful parents but. He shouldn't be the one to suffer for this. Henry has a bright future ahead of him. All we have is just regret and bitterness. She admitted. Then what use would I have for you? Adults cannot become my worker elves. He sneered. Please. Our son deserves better than this. We followed your rules because we thought it meant that we could have him back. Stop playing these mind games and just have a heart. Lisa begged. Santa Claus was stroking his beard and looked toward the reindeer that shivered in the corner. I do need someone new to pull the sleigh, but I can only take one of you to replace the boy. The other can return to the real world alongside Henry. I will give you two minutes to decide. My body fell numb as I looked at Lisa, our entire future being decided in such a short period of time. It should be you, I've been unfaithful, I've ruined our marriage, and I wasn't a good father, I told her. It looked like she was about to agree with me, but then at the last second she told Santa, I will be the one to stay, let Henry return with my husband. Lisa, what are you doing? I deserve this punishment, not you, I told her. I believe in second chances and this is yours. She said as the elves took her toward the reindeer cages. Don't make me regret this, Dylan. And then Santa released Henry and he came into my arms even as the man in the red had sprinkled fairy dust over our faces. I held Henry tight as I began to feel very sleepy, my eyes growing heavy as darkness took me over. When I woke up, we were back in the mall. A couple of patrol officers had found us asleep near the graffiti and told me that I had to leave because it was past closing time. Henry was still fast asleep and I carried him back to the car, my body numb with pain and anger as I walked. At home, I took him to bed and then went down to where all the Christmas decorations were still hanging. I destroyed all of them, tossing them in the fireplace. The holiday meant nothing to me now. I was just about to toss the magical list that Santa had given us when I paused and saw that another item was added to the list for day 6. Another rule to obey blindly and be tricked into thinking that I could get Lisa back was that the new carrot that Santa Claus was dangling in front of me. I couldn't bring myself to toss it into the fire, even if it was hopeless. I wanted to try to fix my broken heart in this broken life that Henry and I had. So, before the morning sun rose, I went out and found what I needed for the next rule. I hunted six geese and chopped their heads off, offering them as another ritual to Santa near my house before going to wake Henry. I told him what I intended to do, to try and get her back, and he shook his head, begging me to stop. The rules, they would just consume you too, dad. I can't lose you both, he pleaded. Such wisdom from a little boy. My hands were shaking as I looked down at the list that commanded my full attention. The only way to win is letting go, he insisted. Together, we took the list to the fire and together, we burnt the list. We held each other and cried. We knew what this meant, but the ritual needed to end. I beg any of you who listen to this tale, beware what simple lyrics hide. The twelve days of Christmas cannot be finished. I am certain only death and destruction await the finale. Before we get into our next story, I just wanted to take a minute to talk about our sponsor. Now I'm here to tell you about Herbstomp. It's the only place to grab top quality kratom, kava, blue lotus, along with hundreds of ethnobotanicals and herbal remedies. Herbstomp has been sourcing only the purest ethnobotanicals for over 10 years. Herbstomp remains a top choice for strange and hard to find herbs. Customers love our lightning-speed, nationwide shipping, friendly attitude, and rigorously sourced products. Every batch of premium kratom is tested with precise detail to ensure the highest quality with every purchase. Capsules and extracts available. Stop by one of our Portland, Oregon retail stores or shop online at herbstomp.com. That's herbstom dot com. And don't forget that you can now get 25% off your next order of Kratom and selected products when you use the coupon code HERBCAST25. That's no spaces, HERBCAST25, when you check out at Herbstomp.com. Free shipping for orders over $100. Herbstomp, America's most trusted Kratom. Three weeks ago, astronomers spotted an object heading at Earth. Last night, it crash-landed. Written by Lighting Nations. Under normal circumstances, I would probably face the firing squad for sharing this, but I'm betting Uncle Sam has got bigger problems right about now. They woke me after midnight, two Marines, said that I had to go with them and that they weren't in the mood for questions. I rode in the back of a black Jaguar with tinted windows to a nearby airstrip, where they shoved me into a military helicopter for a two-hour flight across the desert. The pilots set us down outside a military convoy, this curved wall of utility vehicles and personnel carriers. Beyond it, soldiers hammered together scaffolding and pegged up camel tarps establishing a clandestine sort of base. Quickly, I got shoved inside. Metal shipping containers and foldable tables lay scattered around. There were two other individuals inside, both of whom looked like they had very recently gotten dragged out of bed. One was a lady with a blonde ponytail and sharp cheekbones, who I guessed to be in her mid-thirties. The other a man with a wild gray beard and half-framed glasses A real Colonel Sanders type. Before I could ask what was going on, a uniformed man with colorful medals pinned to his jacket appeared and gave us an indication as to what this was all about. The U.S. government needed our help. Three scientists, three respective leaders in their field, or at least the three who live closest, the uniformed man said before he went any further that each of us needed to sign an NDA. He said the information was highly confidential and that we would face jail time over any leaks. And then he slammed a form on the table and held out a pen. After exchanging a look, me and Ponytail signed without comment. And Greybeard held out for a minute or two. Muttering how outraged it was at getting dragged all this way without warning, before eventually relenting. The moment that pen hit the desk, a female soldier began taking our measurements while the general shut off the lights, walked over to the side table at the back of the room, and flicked down an old school projector. There was a little clicker that he used to cycle through photos. It started with satellite imagery detecting what he called anomalies. Astrologists began tracking weeks earlier before moving on to security footage of a white streak piercing the night sky above a series of sand dunes and then finally a video of teenagers riding around in the back of a pickup truck. Past one of the boy's left shoulder there was a blinding flash of white light. A few seconds later this giant tidal wave of sand rolled toward them, and the footage became all garbled after that. After the lights came up, the officer explained that he needed help investigating a crater several miles east of our current location. The military already had deployed a scouting party, which couldn't explain what they had encountered. All three of us stood there in stunned to silence. While outside, engines revved and helicopters took flight. Metallic clangs and thuds added to the uproar. The general explained that we would be going in with some real firepower, a full squadron of marines. And then he sat behind his makeshift desk, did the finger steeple thing and said, What's it going to be? Greybeard asked for more details, a clarification on several points. The general just stared at us over his hands and said, Yes or no? Ponytail agreed immediately, followed closely by me. It took a few seconds for Greybeard to add a frustrated, Fine. Beyond the room lay changing facilities, divided into segments by rolled down tarps. At the far end, two soldiers guarded the exit, rifles strapped across their chests. The lady who took our measurements ushered us into different compartments where Haskem's suits had been draped over metal hangers. She told us to get changed, fast. Walking around inside the suit took some getting used to. Beside it, lay a pack containing all the equipment that I would need. Prongs, jars, swabs. At the far end of the facility, me and the other scientists met up and then stood around, our helmets under our arms. Greybeard kept saying, I must be nuts, with a shake of his head. Finally, a marine, also kitted out in a protective suit, stepped through the entrance and explained how things would shake out. Those helmets came fitted with lights, cameras, and a radio that we could communicate by. The personnel carrier would drive us in six seals out to the crater, where they had prepared a pulley system which we could repel down by simply walking backwards. From there, it was a short track to the objective. So, what I'm saying is no hassle, got it? We haven't got time to stand around babying anybody through a panic attack. You follow my instructions at all times. I tell you to move, you move. I say stop, you stop. He asked each of us in turn if we understood, and we all said yes. For the next 15 minutes, everybody rocked and bounced and rattled around in the back of a carrier. A dust storm trailing behind the rear wheels. That first pang of fear didn't hit until the vehicle grounded to a halt, at which point I deeply regretted signing up for this. I felt like Alice tumbling into Wonderland. The marines told us to strap on our helmets, and then we all climbed out together. Cables had been hitched around the grill of a Humvee parked ten meters before the mouth of a crater, larger than a Texas football stadium. One by one, the first three marines clipped on and backstepped into the gloomy chasm while the rest hooked up scientists' belts under the cord. By now, Greybeard had reached a state of complete panic. All he needed to do was reverse into the crater but ten minutes later, we were still watching him and give himself a pep talk, like a child terrified of plunging off the top diving board. I didn't really blame them. The commander who had already climbed into the hole radioed over and over checking the reason for the delay, becoming steadily more agitated each time. It took twenty minutes of coercion before Greybeard finally mustered up the courage and went losing his footing several times before the darkness even had a chance to swallow a mob ponytail eased yourself down without protest and then i went my boots lost their grip every 20 steps or so and each time my side scraped roughly against the rock wall sending rubble cascading into the unseen pit over the radio the commander's voice said nice and steady It felt like lowering myself into a hungry mouth. I kept waiting for the stars overhead to disappear as the cavern sealed itself shut. At some point, my eyes closed and they refused to open again until my boots touched a horizontal surface. A marine unhitched my belt and then I waited with the others. Marines on either side of us. After the final troops had rappelled down, everybody got themselves armed and ready and then, the leader said... Let's go. We marched into darkness, guided only by the torches strapped onto the helmets and rifles. Two marines kept to our front, two on each side, and two brought up the rear. The tunnel sloped down at a thirty-degree angle. For a long time, we marched in a straight line over hard rock. But after that, we trudged around puddles of sticky ooze, scattered here and there. There were green lights up ahead. As they grew larger, the tunnel opened into a large hollow roughly the size of an Olympic swimming pool. The ceiling was an uneven height but its tallest point stretched, at least 100 feet from the ground. Toward the far side, there were the beginnings of a sizzling meteor, half buried in the wall. Its intense heat radiated through my face mask. The area blazed with light sticks spaced out every 20 meters or so around the outer edge. A few steps into these space the marines spread apart, coordinated by a series of complex hand gestures. We slowed as we approached the center of the cavern, navigating sticky patches of ooze along the way, and then the commanders signaled a halt and the troops split into two columns. Remember, he said, listen for my instructions. From the darkness, there came a babble of sounds. Writhing, wriggling. I could just about make out a silhouette, alarmingly close. At the commander's gesture, the rifle lights trained on one point, And then we finally, finally got a sense of what they had brought us out here to investigate. Picture the images of the life you see under a microscope. A brown grub, blown up to the size of a camper van and daintily wrinkled with no discernible features to speak of, except a facial tube containing a hole the size of a dinner plate on the end. That black pupil probed the ground as the creature marched around on claws, at the end of six swollen maggoty appendages, uninterested in us visitors. I stood there with my jaw propped open as a shrill yelp came over the radio. Behind me, Greybeard fell into the dirt and scrambled away on his hands and knees. The closest marines hooked him by the armpits, hauled him up and held him in place. I spun back toward the creature, my feet rooted on the spot. Giddy with excitement, Ponytail took a step closer. Incredible, what is it? That's what you're here to tell us, the commander replied. All's we know is it arrived on the meteor. She grabbed a little metal rectangle off her waist and waved it in arcs, her free hand tuning dials along the side. What can you tell us about it? Has it just been wandering around? My knees began to wobble, although I wasn't nearly as bad as Greybeard, whose labored brass blasted over the radio. Is this the only one? Ponytail asked the commander. It is. After another glance at her device, she said, I'm detecting low levels of radiation, but nothing lethal. The debris from the asteroid appears to be nickel and iron, but I'll have to collect a few samples and run some tests to be sure. Two marines stepped toward her as she approached the creature from behind, her counter chirping away. The commander, meanwhile, waved the hand that wasn't wrapped around his rifle in my direction. It was a full minute before I realized that he was signaling for my attention. I had become so caught up in a daze that I forgot why they brought us along in the first place. My hand shook so badly that I only got the pipette out of my packet on the third attempt. With my light trained on the floor, I bent down low so that I could transfer samples of the slime into the little plastic containers. I crouched directly before a puddle of sludge. Another pool lay a few meters ahead. Several others spaced out all around me. I took a moment to collect myself and I glanced around. At the far side of the cavern, green lights blinked out of existence as though something walked across the path, blotting them from view. For a few seconds, I could only see those areas by the surrounding ambience. Just then, a fat glob of mucus dripped under the center of the puddle by my feet. For a moment, a tiny slither of steam rose from that spot. I craned my top half back so that I could look straight up in the constrictive suit. And as I did, chills raced along my spine. We gotta get the heck out of here. I shouted over the radio, racing back to the group. Several lights whipped toward me. I pointed straight up. The rifles illuminated a roof alive with movement. There was something up there, or rather many somethings. Whatever point the Marines had trained on uh, squirmed and wriggled, glistening trails of falling mucus plummeting past the beams of light. Everybody fell silent, except for Greybeard, who had continued hyperventilating. The writhing sound swelled, and then the Marines' rifles waved around in wide arcs. Now silhouetted blobs were approaching us from every direction. Fall back, fall back, the commander screamed. We dashed toward the tunnel but within seconds, we were cut off by another creature. After the commander had signaled to stop, a frantic greybeard elbowed free from the closest troopers and continued his mad scramble from the tunnel. The men that he had shaken off had raced after him. There was a clamor of movement, and then everybody gasped, halting suddenly, because now Greybeard's light uncovered another alien. He toppled backwards onto the ground, his torch illuminating the creature from below like a personal spotlight. You told us that there was only one, Ponytail said to the commander. There was. The creature shuffled towards Greybeard, who tried scrambling back to his feet but moved far, far too slowly. That gaping hole in the organism's face expanded to the size of a car tire and shot out the end of a long tube as though spring-loaded, swallowing the top half of Greybeard's helmet, which began to melt. Wherever trails of mucus seeped from the hole, the suit melted into Greybeard's skin, which sizzled and boiled as though dipped in hot oil. The tube reeled back like a fishing line, convulsing flexing, devouring more and more of the scientist and his protective suit, neck, shoulders, a chest. Once it had reached the halfway point, a pair of flailing legs covered in boils and blisters and exposed muscle from where the material had been completely eaten away, it lifted into the air, screams still blasting across the radio. The life form swallowed our colleague the way that anacondas swallow antelopes, one terrible inch at a time. When only a pair of limp, melted boots poked through the cavity and the screaming stopped. And then Greybeard was gone, devoured. Weapons pointed, several troopers spread out and formed a little semicircle. At the commander's signal, their rifles unloaded. And as those rounds lit up the dark and echoed off rock walls, I dropped her flat onto my stomach, hands over the back of my helmet. A hush fell over the cave. After a few seconds, I felt brave enough to look up. There wasn't a scratch on the creature, which had begun whipping from side to side like a dog shaking itself dry after a paddle around the lake. A tear opened up along the middle like it was getting ripped apart, accompanied by a sticky thwarp. Trails of steamy mucus linked the two halves together. Only when both sides swelled up and acted independently did it become clear that it wasn't tearing. It was splitting. Now there were two pupils and twelve legs. The creature had undergone a process of division, of replication. The slime trails dripped onto the floor, forming more puddles, as the twins wriggled free from one another. I stood there horrified, and my feet bolted onto the spot. Before this process finished, a gun fired somewhere behind us, and then everybody whipped around. The first creature who had begun enveloping a marine who, unable to see because its head had disappeared inside another tube, unleashed a spray of bullets. There were trails of steam billowing from around his dissolving waste. The commander shouted, Fall back! Fall back! And then an arm wrapped around my waist and dragged me away. We gave the twin creatures a generous berth as we circled them, back toward the tunnel butt on the far side. I saw more glow sticks vanish and let out a giant yelp. Lumbering silhouettes surrounded us on all sides, each drawing closer. The aliens had been busy. A gloved hand pressed against my back and then we zigzagged in every direction, our torches momentarily throwing light onto a series of expanding pupils, which shouted in a manner that made me picture spearfishing. I never glimpsed one of the life forms for more than three seconds, thankfully. Nobody could get out there as fast as they wanted because we kept having to sidestep sludge pools. Neither me nor Ponytail said a single word during the mad scramble back to the entrance, where our escorts bounced on their heels as they hooked everybody onto the cable, and then yelled into the radio, Bring us up! Bring us up! As I got reeled into the air, my light whipped around the cavern walls, periodically landing on the creatures climbing their way toward the entrance. Outside the crater, reinforcements had already started arriving. Ponytail and I got ushered past these soldiers and inside the original carrier, while behind us more aliens than I could count, escaped the pit and probed around. On the drive back, armored helicopters and vehicles with turrets mounted on the cargo beds sped past. Over the nearest marine's radio, I heard the words, Perimeter breached. Perimeter breached. Ponytail and I exchanged a concerned look at that. The carrier ground to a halt at the base, where they ushered us inside the facilities and sterilized our suits. Soldiers darted back and forth in a frenzy of activity, the radio spewing static and decoded chatter. The general reappeared and asked us to evaluate what we had seen, although he didn't appear pleased with the report. He simply nodded and then told us a chopper would fly us to the edge of the desert where there would be chauffeurs awaiting to drive us home. I just looked up the area where I estimated the crater to be. West of that position there are reports of authorities rounding up residents and shipping them off. There are also photos of some serious firepower headed that way. I'm not exactly sure what we saw down there. All I know is that I'm writing this at the airport and my flight is about to begin boarding. Merry Christmas I guess. Before we get into the next story, I just wanted to take a minute to talk about our other sponsor, Dave. With the holiday season coming to an end, for many people it's understandable that money can be a little tight right now. Whatever it might be, monthly bills, groceries, gas, and so on, it can all pile up rather quickly and become an issue. Luckily, Dave can help get you out of a pinch so that you can enjoy time with family and friends and not worry so much. Now I'm sure you're wondering who is Dave, but more like, what is Dave? Dave is the banking app that could help you get up to $500 instantly with extra cash. With Dave, there's no interest, late fees, or credit checks. How awesome is that? This allows you to have that extra money to take care of the things that need to be taken care of. And for your regular payments as well that you've been stressing out about, such as bills, groceries, and gas... You can finally tackle those as well. Millions of people have already downloaded the Dave app to get the financial relief that they need with extra cash. So, if you're in a pinch and need some extra help, download Dave and think of it as a helping hand from future you. Download the Dave app from the app store right now or go to Dave.com. Sign up for an extra cash account and get up to $500 instantly. For terms and conditions, go to dave.com/legal. Instant transfer fees apply. Banking provided by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. I'm an ex-police officer. I work the jobs that no one else will take. Written by Doomed Geek. I used to be a cop. I drank, I smoked and I lived off junk food, exercise was a dirty word. I was stressed 24-7 and I barely slept, something had to give, and it did. I lost it with a suspect in an interview room at the station, they ended up in ER, I ended up out of the force. I spent a lot of time hating after this, I hated my bosses and I hated the system and the criminals who played it. Most of all, I hated myself. I sat in my shabby apartment with the lights off, staring at the television day after day. One afternoon, I went out to buy a bottle of scotch. I had no savings and bills that I couldn't pay, but I didn't care. I needed a drink more than anything else. I couldn't wait till I got home to drink it. I stood on the street and unscrewed the lid with the bottle still in its brown paper bag. I was shaking all over, and then suddenly tears were running down my face. To this day, I find it hard to explain what happened, but I did not take a drink. I put the bottle in the trash can and I started walking instead. I remember how some people crossed the street to avoid me, which was understandable. Eyed in Wasture changed my clothes for weeks and I was still crying. Eventually, I found myself in a small park. I sat on a bench and I took a deep breath. Dusk was close and the winter sky was streaked with red. It was beautiful and it inspired me to make a decision. I was going to get my act in gear. I went home and had a long shower and then put on the nearest thing that I had to clean clothes in. I went to see another ex-cop I knew who had started up a security company. He had left under a cloud as well and though his welcome was lukewarm, he didn't slam the door in my face. I told him that I was looking for work. He said that he had some night watchman positions going but that I would need to bring my own dog. That was a no starter so I asked him what else he had. He rolled an unlit cigar around in his mouth and said, I've been hired by a man who suspects that his wife is having an affair. He's got no money of his own, but she's an heiress. Got millions heading her way. The prenup that they both signed states that he's entitled to nothing if the marriage ends. But my client believes that there's chinks in the legal armor that can be exposed if he has the right evidence to take to the divorce court. I wasn't happy at the prospect but I needed to start somewhere to get myself back on my feet. If that place was the gutter, then so be it. I told him that I would get him the evidence. We agreed to a fee that would be paid cash in hand when the job was finished, and then we shook on it in the way old-fashioned men do. The bars were bustling and the cafes were full as I drove through the city center. People moved in waves along the sidewalks, on the way to seeing a movie or a show or do some late-night shopping. A motorbike sped past me carrying deliveries of pizzas, and just ahead of me a police siren flashed. A driver was being questioned next to his vehicle. He was red-faced and he was starting to shout at the officers. Bad move, I thought, as these scenes continued to play out behind me. At the next light, I turned left and headed on a quieter street. I drove past artisan bakers and small art galleries that were now closed for the night. At the end of the street, there was a gently lit restaurant that would have been easy to miss had I not been looking out for it. The husband had passed on the address. He had found a receipt from the place when going through his wife's purse, apparently. As I parked up and climbed out of my car, I figured that this marriage was ready to be taken off life support and wheeled down to the morgue. I was just going to help it on its way. I paused outside the restaurant window and pretended to be checking my phone. The fashionable beautiful people inside did not know the only people who messaged me were credit card companies with reminders that I was late on my monthly payment. As subtly as I could, I took a series of pictures and then carried on my way. The husband had also provided a photograph of his estranged wife and after finding a quiet spot. I checked to see if I had captured her in one of my shots and sure enough there she was. She was in her early thirties with short brown hair and wore a black dress that suited her perfectly. The man that she was with was a little bit older and was wearing what looked like a tailored suit. They looked relaxed and happy as they sipped wine and chatted. The moment that I had captured on my phone did not look like two people who had anything to hide. Even to my jaded eyes, they looked like they were simply enjoying life. I leaned against the wall and I waited. An hour later, they emerged and I followed them, once more pretending to be engrossed in something on the screen of my phone. They weren't touching, but they were connected. It was the way that they looked at each other and laughed together. And then he pressed the alarm for a car. Its light showed and he opened the door, but she stopped him placed a hand on his shoulder, and then kissed him. I decided that I had seen him recorded enough. I left them embracing, and I walked away. Even though I had got what I came for, sneaking around and smiling on people for a few bucks had left me feeling like garbage. After forwarding on the footage, I set off back to the office of the security company to collect my fee. It was close to midnight, but the ex-cop was still at his desk still rolling that unlit cigar around in his mouth. He gave me a guarded smile when he saw me and handed over my payment. The client is happy, he told me. He's waking his lawyer up as we speak, and I have another job for you. Great, I said, trying to show an enthusiasm that I did not feel. I have a client whose property has vermin in it, he continued. My spirits sank even lower. What am I now, an exterminator? I asked. Yeah, kind of, he replied. These vermin walk on two legs and are not paying rent. They've changed the locks and are refusing to leave. You're to get them out using any means necessary. We shook on the fee and I set off on what felt like an even lousier assignment. The property that I pulled up outside 30 minutes later was an old townhouse that had seen better days. Paint flaked from its front door and water dripped steadily from one corner of its guttering. Heavy-looking wooden shutters had any signs of life inside. I didn't announce my arrival. I forced the lock as quietly as I could, using skills that I had picked up on the force and I headed inside. The air was thick with dust and there was a strong smell of damp. Wallpaper hung off in strips, and there were dark specks of mold everywhere that I looked. As I was taking this in, a rat appeared through a hole in the skirting board. It sniffed the air before sauntering off along the floor and didn't pay me a blind bit of notice. This could have been a lovely place to live, and probably it once was, but now it was a dump. I moved as slow and steady along the hall, careful to make as little noise as possible and hoping not to encounter a creaky floorboard. I could not hear anyone and I was beginning to wonder if the unwelcome tenants had decided to move out on their own accord when a baby had started crying. The sound was coming from a room to my left. The door to it was open by an inch. I opened it with my foot enough for me to slip inside. There was no furniture and one naked light bulb dangling from the ceiling. Under it's weak glow, a young woman sat on the floor cradling a child in her arms. She was painfully thin and her clothes were little better than rags. The infant looked cleaner and well fed. Certainly there was nothing wrong with its lungs. The woman looked up at me. Her eyes were bloodshot but dry. I'm guessing that she was all cried out. Lying under a filthy blanket on the floor next to her was a man. He was asleep, possibly with the help of some dubious substance or some other from the looks of him. So, these were the vermin that I was meant to evict. It would have been simple, but I hesitated. I had done something unforgivable and had been thrown out of the police for it, and then wallowed in self pity, and now, when I was trying to be a better person, I was meant to throw this defenseless couple and their child out onto the street. The surveillance that I had just done was bad enough, but this was so much worse. I swore quietly to myself. I couldn't do it. I went down on my haunches, so I was eye to eye with the young woman inside. You don't know me, and you have no reason to trust me, but I would like to try and help you. Her eyes grew wide with suspicion. I did not blame her. The world was full of creeps. You can't stay here, I continued, but I can drive you to a shelter that I know, and I can give you some money. It's not much, but it'll help. The mistrust remained in her eyes as she asked, Why would you do that? My legs were starting to cramp, so I stood up straight with a groan before answering. Let's just say that it feels like a long time since I've done the right thing. And then I smiled. I hope that it made me look more friendly than scary. How about it? I asked. The young woman did still not look convinced and shook the man's shoulder. He woke with a grunt and listened while she spoke quietly to him. Together they seemed to come to a decision. Do we have a deal? I asked. She nodded. The few possessions they had were stuffed into shopping bags and an old suitcase that looked as if it would fall apart at the seams at any moment. I put this in the bags in the trunk of my car while they climbed into the back seat. The baby was gurgling happily by now, and I felt good about my decision to help. But as I closed the trunk, my nerves started to tingle. Someone was watching us. Keeping it cool, I glanced to my left where a slender figure dressed in a long black coat slouched against a wall. His features were masked in darkness. I had no idea who he was or what his problem was and I didn't want to hang around to find out because of the infant. So I got into the car and I started the engine. He did not move as we pulled away and I decided that I was imagining threats. He had just been some punk hanging around on a street corner at night, like punks the world over. I tried to relax and focused on the road. A quarter of an hour later, we reached the shelter. It was in the basement of a church that I had known the pastor when I was a cop. I was not in any way religious, but I respected the work that he did to try and help the homeless. I told the couple who to ask for and handed over the fee that I had been given for the surveillance job. I waited as they walked towards the church. Even though it was in the middle of the night, I knew that its doors would be open for them. I had been awake for far too long and felt like I could fall asleep where I sat, but I wanted to get paid first. The ex-cop was studying something on a laptop and didn't look up when I walked back into his office. "'Well?' he asked. "'They're out of there,' I told him. "'They won't be coming back.' I used my best tough guy voice, wanting to think that I had bundled them out of there and left them bruised and bleeding in a heap on the sidewalk. I saw no reason to tell him what I had actually done. The property was empty and that was what he and his clients wanted at the end of the day. He took some crumpled looking bills out of the drawer, handed them over and muttered, You done good. I've got nothing else tonight, but come back tomorrow and we'll see. Feeling old and tired, I went home and fell into a deep and dreamless sleep, before dawn broke. I slept through the day and when I woke, it was dark once more. I noticed that I had a voicemail on my phone. It was from the ex-cop. Got another job for you. A debt that needs collecting. Call me as soon as you get this. My finger hovered over the callback icon for a long time and then I pressed delete. I was not prepared to sink even lower. Someone else could chase down that debt. I showered and made coffee and even did some stretching exercises. Go me, I thought, and I managed to smile, and then I hit the streets. I needed a new plan and walking would help me think, but I only made it to the end of the street when I saw the man who had been hanging around near the townhouse. He was wearing the same long black coat and this time, he was not keeping to the shadows. His head was shaved and he looked very pale, and he was heading towards me. I resisted the urge to clench my fists and kept my expression neutral as he walked up to me and said, My boss wants to see you. His eyes were dark, darker than seemed natural. I forced myself to meet his gaze and said in the calmest voice that I could, Maybe I don't feel like seeing your boss. Maybe I will just be out of my way. A smile flickered at the corner of his lips. My boss would like to offer you some work. I'm not talking nickel-dime sleaze. I considered my option and decided to go with the devil that I did not know. Sure, I said. His lips pursed as if he was whistling, but if he did it, it was not a whistle that I could hear. A moment later, a limo drove into view and pulled alongside me. He opened the back door and said, Get in. The windows of the limo were tinted and the bodywork had been carefully polished. It was a class act. I climbed in. The seats were wide and soft and the interior was wood paneled. A man sat opposite me. He wore a suit that was simple yet elegant and his gray hair was slicked back. He looked like he could have been the CEO of a corporation if it had not been for his skin. Like the man in the long black coat, he was pale, so much so that I could make out his veins beneath, and he was observing me through eyes that were equally as dark. You came to my attention last night when you went to the townhouse, he said in a quiet and measured voice. My man was there watching the property, he contacted me and told him to follow you. I shrugged, pretending hearing this had not disturbed me and asked as nonchalantly as I could. Why the Watcher and why am I of interest? I'm no one. Not now, but you certainly used to be someone, he said. A little time on the internet told me that you used to be a guardian of the law, until you went off the rails. My temper flared at this. Who did he think he was, prying into my life? That's old news. I snapped and reached for the door handle. He held up his hands in an apologetic gesture. I meant no offense, he said. Please let me answer your questions. The house was being watched because the people staying there illegally know my daughter. And you are of interest because my daughter is missing. And I need someone with the experience and expertise to find her. I believe as a former police officer that you have those qualities. I kept my hand on the door but made no move to open it. This man was clearly shady, but he had gotten my interest. Unlike collecting debts, finding a missing person was the kind of job that I wanted to take on. I let go of the handle. I'm interested, I told him, for the right fee. He named a figure and it was high enough to solve my cash flow problems for the next few weeks. So that was me on board. He tapped on the window, and the door was opened by the man with the long black coat. The car started to pull away and I asked him, Are you not going with them? Oh, I prefer to fly, he replied. Before I could ask what on earth he meant by that, he handed over a mobile phone and a sheet of paper. I glanced down at it and saw a photograph of a young woman printed on it. Oh, I need more than this, I said, and looked up. The sidewalk was empty. I suppressed a shiver. There was something seriously strange about the people that I was now working for. But I decided not to worry about it. I had work to do. Work that I wanted to do. And work maybe that would make me feel a little bit of pride in myself. Go me, I said to myself. I checked the phone. It was not password locked and there was only one number in the address book. Presumably my new client's. I put the phone in my overcoat pocket and then set off back to the shelter at the church where I planned to question the young couple with the child. I didn't know what the relationship was with the woman that I was working for, but they were the only lead that I had. It was past 1am when I parked up outside the church. There was a small queue in front of a wooden table set up in the grounds of the church. The soup was being ladled out from a couple of urns by the pastor. He saw me and smiled. Hello, officer. It's been a while. I grinned back, though I felt uncomfortable as I told him. I'm not a cop anymore. I messed up and got thrown off the force. A fact that continued to sting. His smile did not waver as he replied. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. I hope that you're doing okay. Getting by, I answered. I'm wondering if you can help me. I dropped off a couple here last night. They had a baby with them. I wanted to speak to them if that's okay with you. It would be, he told me, but I'm afraid that they're not here anymore. They left at first light. I told them that they were very welcome to come back and spend the night, but there's been no sign of them. Strike one, I thought, and I thanked the pastor and told him that I would see him around. And then I returned to my car. I drove for hours, slowing down when I saw figures huddled among cardboard boxes and doorways and alleys and lying close to heating vents around the back of the stores, to see if it was the couple and their child. I left the car parked up under the only working lamp in the street and I walked through a park where a group of men and women stood sharing a bottle and I asked around. I kept walking then through an underpass lined with sleeping people. I crouched down, trying to make out faces as every now and then, a rumble filled the darkened space as a truck passed overhead. There was no sign of the couple and their child anywhere. It was going light as I trudged back to my car. I had hit a brick wall but I had no plans to sleep. I was going to contact one of my former colleagues who was still on the force. We had been partners for years and I hoped if I had asked in the right way he would look through the missing person's database for me. And then blind luck intervened. Telling myself that my next stop would be the nearest place that sold lottery tickets, I crossed the road towards where the woman was sitting on the bench cradling her baby. The man was rooting through a bin and picking strands of tobacco out of cigarette ends. Hey, I said. It's good to see you again. We spent your money, the woman said. If you want it back, that's tough." The hardness and suspicion in her eyes from the night before remained. I didn't blame her for this. She had clearly been through a lot in her young life. I'm not here to ask for a refund. I replied and cracked a smile at trying to keep things light. But I would appreciate your help. I held the printed photograph up so that she could see it. I'm trying to contact this lady. This did not go down well. She tensed up even more and held the baby a little bit closer. Please, I tried. I won't lie to you. I've been hired to find her and if I do, there'll be a good payday in it for me. And I'd be happy to pass some of my fee on to you. She still didn't look happy with me, but she shrugged her shoulders and said, I guess I could try. We agreed to meet back at the bench in a couple of hours and I watched as they gathered up their possessions and headed away. I noticed for the first time that the baby had what looked like a new blanket wrapped around it and wondering if it had been bought with the money I had given them. I allowed myself a smile. I had an appetite for a substantial breakfast for the first time in as long as I could remember so I went to find a diner. After eating, I passed the time reading a day-old newspaper that I found in the booth and sipping coffee and then I drove back to the bench, parked up opposite and waited. Two hours later, I was wishing that I hadn't drunk so much coffee and I started to shiver as the temperatures outside had dipped. I went to use the restroom in the diner and returned to the car with a drink that I had bought because it gave me something hot to hold. There was still no sign of them at the bench. I settled down and went back to waiting. I closed my eyes, just to rest them, and then woke up with a start to see if it was dark. The coffee cup that I was still grasping was cold. I took a sip anyway and I stretched and yawned. So much for meeting in a couple of hours, I thought, and I wiped away condensation from the side window. I sat up straight. There was a hazy figure just beyond the bench. I climbed down nice and slow and though I wasn't carrying, I kept my hands in sight. If this was who I hoped it was, I did not want to do anything to scare them off. Now that I was out in the open, I could see that it was a woman. The woman in the printed photograph that I saw, with a mixture of relief and excitement. She was almost lost inside a coat that was too big for her and she was visibly shaking, either from the cold or nerves or maybe both. My heart was beating a little faster and my breathing was forming clouds in the freezing air. "'I'm glad you came,' I said and took a step towards her. She held up a hand. "'Don't come any closer. I came because someone I trust said that you would help them, but you have zero goodwill from here on in. What do you want?' I could have easily lied or sugarcoated the pill, but I decided to be straight with her. And your father hired me to find you. Her voice was laced with bitterness when she said, I should have known. I've told him that I don't want anything to do with him, but the only opinion that he cares about is his own. And perhaps you should give him a second chance, I interrupted. She shook her head. You don't understand, he used to be a businessman. A lot of what he did was not legal, but he was never violent. No one worked for him was allowed to cross that line. As soon as I was old enough, I understood where the money for my designer clothes and private school came from. But I was enjoying myself too much to care. And then something happened to him. He changed. He started to scare me. It was like there was a darkness inside him. So now I won't give him anything. As far as I'm concerned. He is no longer my father. I don't recognize the thing that he has become." As she spoke, tears had begun to run down her face. I believed her and I had a choice to make. First, I needed to know something else. How old are you? I asked. Twenty-five, she replied. I batted that back to her. How old are you really? She hesitated and then said. Twenty-one. Okay, I said. In that case, I'm going to walk away from this situation. You're an adult so you can make your own decisions, but I would like to give you my phone number and if you ever feel threatened by your father, you can call me. And before you ask why, it's because I'm trying to do the right thing in life. I'll probably fail more times than I succeed, but hey, that's my problem. She smiled at this. She had a beautiful smile and I wished for a moment that I had met her in a different time, and a different place. But here and now, she was walking away from me, leaving me on my own. I stood there feeling cold and tired and old beyond my years. I sighed. I would need to phone her father at some point and tell him that I couldn't help him. He didn't sound like someone to cross, but I could take care of myself. I decided to get it over with. I took out the phone that I had been given and I clicked on the number, but before it connected, a scream filled the night. I looked up. The woman that I had been hired to find was being attacked by two shadowy figures. I forgot about the phone and began to run. I yelled out, Leave her alone! Seconds later, I almost made it to her. Her assailants were both men, both had very pale faces and dark eyes. I put two and two together and I bellowed at them. Take your hands off her and walk away. And tell your boss to leave her alone or he'll have to deal with me. In the heat of the moment, I didn't care how dangerous her father was. They were holding her by her arms and she had stopped struggling and was gasping for breath. Do it now, I said. One of the men released her arm and moved towards me. He had a calculated and confident smile on his face. Oh, you've got this very wrong, he said. We don't work for her father, we work for his competition and this young lady will prove to be a very valuable commodity. I swore under my breath. I had misread the situation and she was in even more danger than I had thought. It was time to stop talking. I clenched my fists and was about to launch myself at the man in front of me. When I saw another two figures emerge from the darkness, they were in no hurry at all, and neither were their foul companions. All four encircled the woman. She had become very still and she had lost hope it seemed. I should have as well and I was hopelessly outnumbered. But I wasn't going to just let them take her. Even if trying to save her was the last thing that I ever did. I began to walk towards them. The only sound was my ragged breathing at first. And then I heard something above me. It sounded like the beating of wings. I glanced up into the sky and saw two sleek dark shapes. They encircled once and then, wings cutting through the air, and they descended at speed. In a heartbeat, they were at ground level. They had moved so quickly that I had found it impossible to focus on them, and now they were closer. I still struggled to understand what I was seeing. The two winged creatures that I had seen were changing. Their wings were slowing and disappearing inside the fabric of the long black coats that were draped over the bodies of two men. I recognized one with a jolt. It was the shaven-headed man who I had last seen, when he had handed me the phone and the printed photograph. The man with him had a shock of blonde hair and the same pale skin and piercing dark eyes. I stood there, my mind racing, watching as the two of them approached the quartet that surrounded the woman. Their quiet arrogance had gone. Now all four were stony-faced, focused. I had been in enough tinderbox situations in my life to know things were about to explode. Even so, I was shocked to the core by what had happened next. The quartet bared their teeth exposing hideously sharp fangs. They snarled, sounding no longer human but like feral animals, and they threw themselves at the newcomers, whose own fangs glinted in the dark night as they met the attack head on. All of them joined in a frenzied swirl, Howls of anger exploded from this melee of clawing and kicking and biting. I could see pale flesh being sliced open his fangs and moved like blades. One of them was being held by his throat and thrashed from side to side in the bestial grip of another. There was blood everywhere, staining the fighters in the ground around them, and the women who cowered by their feet. As the battle raged, she had been abandoned momentarily. I snapped out of my daze and sprinted forward. One stray blow from one of the combatants could hurt her very badly. I needed to get her away from them. I grabbed her clumsily and was lifting her to her feet when a sharp pain flowered intense and sudden in my arm. I forced myself to ignore it and the adrenaline which was surging through me propelled me onward and I carried her away from the fight. Six feet, twelve. We were still too close to them. But I suddenly staggered and tripped and we landed in a heap. I rolled on and ended up on my side. I turned my head and saw that she was looking at me. Her eyes were wide with shock. Are you hurt? I asked. I don't think so, she replied. She glanced at the fighters. What are they? I don't know, I replied, but we need to get as far away from them as we can. I could see the victors were emerging from the carnage. Two blood-covered figures were standing over four prone forms. None of the quartet were moving. One of the victors turned his face to the sky and screamed in triumph. His shaven head gleamed in the darkness. "'Can you stand?' I asked the woman. She nodded. We dragged ourselves to our feet and began to stumble away, but we didn't stand a chance. I felt someone grab my leg and I was hurled through the air. I landed heavily and lay there trying to catch my breath. I could only watch as the woman was lifted into the sky by the shaven-headed creature and its companion, their wings once more in sight and beating, carrying them and their prisoner beyond my reach. I cried out in anger and frustration, and then I noticed the phone which I had dropped at some point in the chaos. I dragged myself over to it and picked it up, and I made the call. The line connected. "'Are you there, you son of a? I began.' The voice on the other end broke in. Be very careful what you say. I gave you a job to do and you ended up putting my daughter in danger. If it hadn't been for your pathetic shouting in the tracker and the phone we gave you, my enemies would have her in their clutches now. It was my turn to cut in. She wants nothing to do with you. You need to let her live her own life. You do not tell me what to do, he bellowed. You are nothing, you human. He said this last word with utter scorn, as if being a human made me be lowest to below. "What are you?" I asked. "What are your men? If you're not human, what kind of monster are you?" He was silent for a moment, and when he spoke again, his voice was assured. "We are beings that have been freed from the constraints of mortality. beings of the night and the true masters of this world. We are vampire." And with this, the line went dead. My head was spinning and I began to shake all over as shock kicked in. I sat up and started to get slowly to my feet and as I did so, the pain that I had felt earlier came back with a vengeance. The adrenaline that had sustained me earlier was spent now. And I was left clutching my arm, biting my lip and close to sobbing. It was agony. I took a series of deep breaths to try and calm myself and then took off my overcoat and rolled my shirt sleeve up to see to where I was hurt. A cold wave of horror rushed through me. There were two deep wounds in my skin. I had been bitten. It had happened while I was getting the woman away from the fight. I cursed. This nightmare situation had gotten a whole lot worse. I needed to get to the ER now before I could even think about trying to help anyone else. I started to head back to the car. I was very unsteady and nauseous. By the time that I reached my car, I was fumbling in my pockets for the keys. I felt like I was burning up as well. Sweat was dripping in my eyes. There was no way that I could drive. So I crawled into the back seat and curled up under my overcoat. And then I passed out. A dreamless darkness swirled around me. I remember at one point coming around, and I could see pale winter sunlight through the car window, and suddenly my hand was stinging. I pulled my hand under my overcoat and winced in pain. It felt like I was burned. Huddled under my overcoat, I closed my eyes and drifted back into unconsciousness. I had lost another day by the time that I rose. My fever seemed to have passed off but my stomach was cramping with hunger. Feeling like I had done 12 rounds being pounded by a heavyweight, I dragged myself from the car and stood there, amazed. The night took my breath away. The stars in the sky were empty points of light. It was the darkness that was beautiful that glistened. It was full of movement as well. I realized that it was insects darting through the air, and I could hear the hum of their minuscule wings. Without thinking what I was doing... My arm shot out with lightning speed, and I grabbed one of the bugs and put it into my mouth. I felt it brushing against my tongue and then I swallowed it. Repulsion flooded me as I realized what I had done. What was wrong with me? I staggered forward the bench where I had seen the woman cradling her baby had not caught my attention before. Why should it when it was just made of dull wooden slats? But now I was transfixed by it. It was a myriad of different shades and textures, and there were so many scents arising from it. But these smells were nothing compared to the bin where her partner had been scavenging for scraps of tobacco. Its stenches were harsh and powerful. Decay in dead meat and sweetness hit me from the fast food wrappers and cola cans inside. It was overwhelming. I staggered on to be met by a new grotesque spectacle. Four piles of ashes lay on the ground clothes were scattered around them the memory of last night flashed through me I saw again the four figures who had lost the fight prone and unmoving was this their remains I had no way of knowing this for sure but I believed it was them and then a new recollection came back to me of the way the sun had felt as it had burnt my flesh had they been consumed in flames when the light of dawn came instinct had told me yes Good riddance, I thought grimly, and then I stepped over them. I had only made it a few steps when a fresh stomach cramp gripped me. I was ravenous, and I needed to feed so badly that I began to weep. The diner where I had a long and lazy breakfast was the nearest place that I knew, and I ran in its direction. The light from its flickering sign was hazy, but the building itself was framed in crystal clear darkness. There were a handful of customers inside the diner and a tired-looking waitress moving from one to the other. As I watched her pour a refill, desire burnt inside me, I could sense the blood flowing through her veins. It was this that I needed to say to my hunger. This, every fiber of me was screaming to take from her. But to do that, I would have to hurt an innocent person. And in the frenzy of my bloodlust, how far would I go? Would I kill her? Somehow I forced myself to walk away. I had become a monster, but a part of the person that I had been still remained. Though the night rained, there were still people out on the streets. Drunks still weaved their way home after the bars had closed in. The homeless slept in their doorways and alleys. A police car passed by. Once, I was one of those men in uniform. Now I kept to the darkness until they were out of sight. I wasn't frightened of them. I was frightened of what I might do to them. Fighting down the urge to attack and feed on those that I saw, I hurried on through the darkness. An idea had come to me, a way to solve my revolting hunger. When I had been a cop, I had run an informer who hung out in an illegal drinking den. He was a total lowlife who would help me take much worse scum off the streets, and he liked to brag that he could get a hold of anything for a price. I waited out of sight by the entrance to the den until I saw him emerge. He had the same old arrogant sneer on his face. He thought that he was a big man and so cool. I stepped into view. The sneer left his face. Remember me, I said. Yeah, man, you were a cop, but I heard you got kicked into touch. He replied after a nervous pause. Yeah, that's right, I told him. And I'm not looking for information now. You're going to provide something else for me. I'll pay you if you're quick enough. A little of his old arrogance flared into sight at this. I guess he didn't like my terms. Half now, half on delivery of the goods. That's how it works, man. I moved closer to him. You are going to bring me blood and be grateful that I don't take it straight from your neck. I snarled and bared my teeth. That ended the negotiation. He hurried off, and I returned to the cover of the alley. I was beginning to wonder if he had fled when I heard footsteps approaching. My old informant was carrying a bag with a medical cross on it. I scored this from someone that I know who works in a hospital who owes me, he said. I took out a handful of crumpled bills and threw them at him. He handed over the bag and was stooping over to pick the money up off the street as I turned my back on him. I opened the bag and it was packed with sachets of blood. I grabbed one, tore it open with my teeth and drank it, and then tore another and another until they were all gone. I threw the bag to one side and sank to my knees. I felt no sense of relief, only self-disguised, but my addict's knee was dulled for a while at least, which left me free to deal with some unfinished business. I dug out the phone and called the number. It rang on and on, but I wasn't going to hang up. Finally, the call was picked up but the person who answered it didn't say anything. It is me, I said into the silence. We should meet. I heard a breath, and then a voice. Why should I meet you? Let's just say that I've changed, I answered. I can be helpful to you. Remember, I used to be a cop, and I know how certain things work, and where information can be found that could be useful to an entrepreneur such as yourself. After a moment, I got the reply that I wanted. Stay where you are. I'll send my men to get you. After a frustrating wait, the limo pulled up alongside me. As I climbed into the back seat, I heard the beating of wings overhead. It was just me and the driver in the limo this time. I see we've got an airborne escort. I said to him with a wiry smile and settled back into the luxurious seat. I couldn't see anything through the tinted windows and when the limo finally glided to a halt, I had no idea where I was. I'd leave a tip, but I used the last of my ready cash at buying a snack. I told the driver as I got out. We were parked inside what looked like a cellar. I figured that it was still night, but it was impossible to tell because there were no windows. There were no lights either, but that wasn't a problem. Everything was clear in the dark. I stood and watched as he walked towards me. He was flanked by his sidekicks in their long black coats. One blonde, one shorn back to the scalp with a razor. And he was dressed as immaculately as before in a business suit and there was not a grey hair out of place. Welcome to my lair, he said and smiled. I caught a glimpse of the fangs behind the smile and, felt unease, trickled on my spine. I tried to keep my voice steady as I replied. I get it now what you and your men are, and I would like to sign up. I would like to be a part of a firm. This brought a new smile to his pale lips as he replied. I can see what changed your mind. The transformation to vampire reveals a world of possibilities. Before I became superior, I was content to import stolen goods and distribute powders and pills, but I knew my place in the criminal community. Now I want it all and I will take it. From the humans and from the other vampires who think that they're on the power in the city. He clicked his fingers and added, And just so we are in no doubt, let me show you what I do to those who are not loyal to me and me alone. The man was dragged into view by two more henchmen. His skin was as pale as theirs but his face was covered in bruises and he looked terrified as he was thrown heavily to the ground. The smile that left the grey-haired man's face and... He now held a dagger in his hand. Its handle was made of some kind of metal, but its blade, I realized, was carved from wood. He raised it high and then plunged it into his chest of the figure on the ground, into the vampire's heart, who screamed an agonized cry that lingered even as his flesh began to collapse. His chest fell in on itself and then the destruction spread, and a wave across his still writhing body, his arms, his legs, it crumbled and dust. His face was still contorted in pain as it too collapsed. Seconds after the ornate stake had been plunged in, the vampire was left as a pile of fragments lying in the ground before us. His killer turned to me and said, Do you really think that I'm so naive as to believe that you want to ally yourself to me? I know why you're here, you wish to rescue my daughter. A noble aim and one that is foolish in the extreme. He clicked his fingers a second time, and a new henchman appeared, and this time, they were dragging a woman between them. It was her. His daughter, the woman that I had failed. She stayed on her feet when the henchman had pushed her, and I could see the anger in her. She still had a lot of fight left, despite her desperate situation. Her father smiled knowingly and said to her, You know what needs to be done. I will leave you now while you explain. He wheeled around and strode off. His cronies followed, leaving us alone. What does he mean? I asked her. She looked at me but did not answer. Her face was streaked with tears and dirt but her skin was still flushed with color. She was still human and that gave me hope. Let me help you escape, I told her. Somehow there must be a way. The sadness filled her eyes as fresh tears fell. I thought again of how beautiful she was. She shook her head. There's no way out. Not for me, it's too late. My father has decided that I must be turned and be by his side. And then she reached out and took my hands in her. She felt so warm and I could sense the blood pulsing under her flesh. I told her that I would willingly submit to this. She went on, but on one condition... That he lets you leave unharmed. No, I cried. She placed a finger on my lips, silencing me. He agreed to let you leave, but only if it is you that turns me. You must bite me and make me a vampire. I can't do that. I just can't. She held me in her gaze. I saw the network of veins in her eyes, the life that shone inside of her. There's no other way. And this way we both survive. And then she guided my fangs to her neck. This was long ago. I am alone now. I scavenge blood to keep my cravings at bay. I hide from the light and hide from human and vampire alike. And I hold on to these slenderest of threads. The hope that I will see her again. The woman I love. My lady of the night. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.